Hey, this is Eric, and you're listening to the Story Church Podcast. Our podcast features audio from Sunday mornings at Story Church in Peru, Indiana, a community on the mission of connecting people's story to God's story. If you'd like to connect with us further, check out storyperu.com. Our hope is that today's episode helps you take your next step on your faith journey. I'm excited to jump into this today. If you've been with us the past four weeks, uh, we just wrapped up a series called The Bible for Grownups, and uh, I enjoyed that series. It's something that we were looking forward to for a long time, uh, but at the same time, I'm kind of glad to be done with it because I felt the pressure every week. We were walking through uh, the story of how we got the Bible and how that actually shapes and impacts our faith, and I felt like, okay, week one went, well, week one was great because Andy Stanley from Atlanta, Georgia taught, so I definitely felt the pressure on week two to live up to his standards, and then every week is like, oh my gosh, we're just going with this topic. So anyway, I'm excited to jump into something uh, new today, and uh, I have a little bit of a confession at the beginning, um, how we decided to teach on this, uh, the origin of this series. It's called It Is What You Make of It, and uh, a couple of months ago, I was thinking about looking at our teaching calendar. There were these couple of weeks here where it was just kind of like one or two weeks in a row. And I was like, man, what does God have for us? Like, what should we talk about? What would be relevant for us? And so I did what every good uh, 2022 20, person does. And I hopped on Amazon and I scor- started scrolling through my book list because I have a running list of like books that I want to purchase. And I saw this one on the list uh, called It Is What You Make of It. And I thought, hey, that looks great just by the title because that's how you should judge all books, right? So I went ahead and I bought it. But as I bought the book, I also penciled in this series because I was like, that, I like that concept. I think it's going to be good for us. I penciled it in. I read the book throughout uh, a couple of months this summer, and it was good, but it was not what I expected at all, and I got virtually nothing for this series. And so a couple of weeks ago, I was like, oh, that's coming up. And I still like the concept, but like, I don't know what to do with like, teaching or communicating it. Uh, so we shrunk it down to one week, and uh, here's what we put together from it. But basically, the, the book, um, the thing that I didn't expect is it was just stories from the author's life. Uh, where he kind of pulled out some truth and some application, which is great, but doesn't always translate to church on Sunday morning. But the title of the book uh, actually came from this moment that happened in uh, the author's life when he was in high school. Uh, The author's name is Justin McRoberts. If you want to check out the book, feel free. Uh, But when he was in high school, he was in speech class and kind of had this reputation as the class clown. So he would often get in trouble and get sent to the principal's office and that type of thing. And he was sitting there in speech class, goofing off once again, and the teacher caught him. But rather than sending him immediately to the principal's office, the teacher did something unique. Uh, He called Justin up to the front of the class, and he said, hey, you stand here. And he's like, okay, am I in trouble? Like, what's happening? And and then the teacher went over to this closet that, according to Justin, had never been opened before throughout the school year to this point. He opens up the closet, and he pulls out one of these. And if you don't know what one of these are, you're normal, because that's an inflatable cactus. So the speech teacher pulls out the inflatable cactus, like sets it up next to Justin, and he's just standing there. And then the teacher goes over and he sits in Justin's seat and he goes, all right, Mr. McRoberts, the floor is yours. And he's just standing there, like (laughs) high schooler, inflatable cactus, like what do you mean? The floor is yours. And I'm sure what felt like an impossibly long amount of time, like he just stood there, he tried to figure out what was expected of him. And then eventually uh, another kid in the class yells out, Just act like you're in the desert or something. It's just a cactus. And that is when the teacher spoke up and delivered the line that's shaping our entire message for today. He says, no, 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 no. It is not just a cactus. It is what you make of it. And that phrase, I think, is really captivating and really compelling if you stop and think about it. I was thinking about it throughout like my life growing up. 
And I feel like that's been so true for me. Like, do you, when you were a kid, did you like to make stuff up and maybe uh, make something out of nothing or out of just like junk that was laying around? Uh, like, how many of you guys remember the JCPenney catalog that used to show up? Yeah, that thick bad boy that would show up around the holidays. So uh, I remember my brother and I always looked forward to when my mom would get the JCPenney catalog, partially because it meant the holidays were coming and we were going to get stuff out of the catalog, hopefully. But it was even more exciting when she was done with the catalog and she set it on the shelf. Uh, because what my brother and I would tend to do is we would go out in the garage and we would find an old cardboard box because my mom just has a pile of cardboard boxes just in case, I guess. And, and we would bring it inside. Uh, we would open up that JC Penick catalog and we would start cutting out things and taping it to the inside of the box to make a house for our Care Bears because we were very into Care Bears. We're sensitive fellows, I guess. But, <laughs> but we were, uh, yeah, we would make these houses and we would play with them. And like this stuff that basically was junk at that point, right? An old catalog and an old cardboard box would become this like space where we could imagine and we could play together. And we had tons of fun every year, classic kid move, right? Playing with the box rather than all the toys and the stuff that was yet to come. Uh, if you've been around Story for any amount of time, you've probably heard me talk about how when I was a kid, I like to imagine that I was Eric Solo so like Han Solo, but Eric, like it was me, and we would run around my house. Uh, we would pretend that my house, which uh, my parents' house has this like circular layout to it where you can just run around and around. We would pretend it was a space station, and Eric Solo would always do these missions to save the girl, of course, every time. And it was a ton of fun. But then I was also thinking like, in my life as I grew up a little more, when I got to like later high school and, and early college, like this idea that it is what you make of it took on a different flavor because it wasn't just imagining uh, and playing with toys and that kind of stuff, but it was imagining my future. Like, do you remember what it was like to be like a junior and senior in high school and thinking like, oh no, <laughs> like school's about to come to an end, mom and dad are probably gonna kick me out of the house, I've gotta figure out what's next. Uh, in that moment, although it can be scary and intimidating, it's also packed full of potential. As we dream about what life might become, like there's nothing like that season of life where you're imagining what your future could look like, whether that's going to school somewhere or getting a job or, or dreaming about relationships and a family and what that could look like. And I was even thinking about the season that our church is in right now. Uh, some of you may know we recently acquired a property downtown that we're in the process of developing and planning and, and eventually making into our future church home. And uh, I was thinking about this building because I've been a little hesitant to show anybody the insides of it because it doesn't look that stellar right now. It's a big concrete rectangle that sat there for 20 years, basically with nothing in it. And uh, we eventually decided to like break the seal off and invite people in this past Saturday, yesterday morning. We had a team show up and do our first work day on the building. We've got a few pictures of uh, the team down there. That's Wes hiding his face. I had to... <laughs> Since he hid from me, I had to show the photo. Like, that's how I am. But anyway, we were working on taking down that drop ceiling. And like I said, I've been hesitant to show it because like with the drop ceiling down, it looks smaller than I think it really is. And, and there's like walls up that we'll probably take down and kind of dingy cigarette smell because it was around for like 20 years and people smoked in there a lot. And it's just like, I actually like met the team at the doors. and was like, hey, before you go on, remember, this isn't what it's going to look like in the end, right? And then I realized as the team was working and like we tore down that whole drop ceiling and started to open it up and started to uh, work towards what's next, I realized like, man, it is what you make of it, isn't it? And although this was like a very practical thing and we were working hard and sweating and getting stuff done, like it was also this holy moment where I realized we're starting to lay the groundwork for the space where God's going to move in the next chapter of Story Church. And, and it's just so compelling me to think about that. And the reason I share all of that is just to say that like, most of the best stuff of life happens on the other side of imagination and belief and possibility. 
Isn't that true? Like, think about your life and the things that matter most to you. Didn't you make some of those biggest decisions in your life, hopefully motivated by belief and hope and possibility and dreaming about what the future could be like, like your relationships? Don't your friendships work best when everybody's positive and dreaming and celebrating together? Doesn't your marriage work best when you have a vision for what it could look like in the future, your family, and what it could look like in the future? Your job, right, that thing that you spend, like, most of your life doing, uh, isn't your job like more than just a job when you have a vision for it, when you have a passion behind it and you're excited about what you get to get up and do every single day? And, and even as it relates to making an impact in our community, that's better when we're open to like how God may want us to use our gifts and our talents for his purposes along the way. But the problem is I think although all of us at some point along the way have had that posture of dreaming and hoping and believing that God may want to do something incredible, I also think as we get older, all of us are tempted to lose sight of that and get a little less dreamy and a little more realistic, maybe as we say it, or as we're going to talk about today, maybe a little more cynical. And somewhere on the way, maybe life kind of gave you a big inflatable cactus where you were standing there and like you were trying, you had the plan, you had the dream, you had the ambition, you were going for it. And then something happens that just derails all of it. And you're left like, what do I do with that? Right? Maybe that job that you loved or that you thought you were going to love suddenly wasn't as incredible as you thought it was going to be. And so then you were stuck in this job where you felt like you couldn't win at it, but you also didn't feel like you could quit because you had to provide for your family, and you're just stuck in this moment. Or maybe for you, like you're stuck in a relationship that you feel like burnt out months ago or maybe even years ago, but it, it feels like you can't figure out how to fix it or what to do with it. Like Life just isn't going the way that you expected. Maybe you have a passion project something that you were really excited about, something you're going to do on the side, or, or maybe a hobby, and you invested time and energy and money into it, but now you've lost the passion for it, and you're like, what do I do now? Because I have all this invested, I have all this wrapped up in it, but what am I supposed to do with it? Whatever it is, when we have these moments in life, I think all of us at some point along the way have been tempted to throw in the towel and say, it is what it is, right? It is what it is. This is just how life is. This is just how things go. And uh, maybe another confession about today's talk is uh, I almost made this talk into a multi-week series just about phrases that I hate, because uh, I guess I just have an axe to grind, but this is one of them. It is what it is. It drives me crazy. It's right up there with, like, that's how we've always done it, and it's just the way that I am. It, it's like these phrases that sometimes we use to excuse or to limit uh, our belief in who we are and who God might want us to become. And this phrase, it is what it is, like, on the one hand, I get it. Like, it's useful, and there are certainly aspects of our lives that just are what they are, right? Like, you're going to face traffic sometimes. It is what it is. Your alarm clock will go off tomorrow, and you probably should wake up. It is what it is. And it, it can be convenient and comfortable to take that perspective about some of those more mundane aspects of life. But in the big picture, this attitude that life just is what it is can be one of the most toxic things that you can embrace, it can be one of the most dangerous things for a Jesus follower to think about their life because it can limit you and keep you from the bigger, hope-filled, belief-filled things that God wants to do in you and through you. Those words, it is what it is, are almost always a trap. And they're almost always a trap that can keep us stuck and can make us settle for less than what our soul wants and less than what God wants for you. And I think the real danger of embracing an it is what it is mindset is it can lead us into bitterness and into cynicism more than anything else along the way. And I don't know if you're like me, but like, has anybody else felt 
maybe a little more inclined towards cynicism over the past few years? Like, doesn't it feel easier than ever to be jaded and to be frustrated? Because if you want to talk about an inflatable cactus that disrupts everything, what was 2020 and, and maybe even part of 2021? Right? Like in March of 2020, the NBA suddenly canceled and then we're home for months and months and months and we're like, what in the world do I do with my life that was once normal and suddenly was taken from me? And we had all these emotions and feelings and like kind of the chaos of like what's safe and what am I supposed to do? And we were just trying to navigate it. And here's the thing, we're not like going into the political world today, but on either side of it, I think it's been easy for us to get jaded and cynical towards other people, hasn't it? Like to see the behavior of others and, and to just think, oh my gosh, they're the problem, or, or those people, and if they would just, whichever side you're on, or even if you don't pick a side, like it's easy, easier than ever to be frustrated and to be burnt out and to be jaded. And you top all of that disruption from COVID off with like some political polarization and some racial unrest, and, and then like the economy's crazy, and it just seems like life has made it easier than ever to be cynical and to be jaded. But here's the thing that I know is true about you, because it's true of all of us. Nobody sets out in life to become cynical, right? Nobody, uh, I was talking about like late high school, early college, nobody in their 20s is like, you know what? By the time I'm in my 30s, I'm gonna be in a spot where I don't trust anyone, I don't hope for anything, and I realize that life is what it is, and I wake up and I go through the motions and try and survive another day so I can go to bed and do it again tomorrow. Like, if you know an 18 to 20-year-old who's talking like that, get them to a counselor or talk to them. Like, because that's not, like, how most of us start out our lives, is it? Most of us have big dreams. We have big ambitions. We have things that we want to do and accomplish. But sometimes we can get to the spot over time where we drift into this cynical mindset where we think, like, it's not worth it anymore. It just is what it is. Life happens to us, and we just have to respond to it. And what I want to do with our time together today is I want to hopefully convince you that you don't have to live a it is what it is kind of life, but rather with God, you can partner with him to have a it is what you make of it kind of life. A, a life where you actually pursue God-sized dreams and ambitions, a life that's marked by hope and belief and trust that tomorrow can be better than today. And choosing to understand that it is what you make of it can be a game changer in your relationships, in your career, in your faith, really throughout your whole life. To have this perspective can change everything for us. And it's a big deal because at the end of the day, our perspective can shape our experience. Uh, you've probably noticed this to be true if you've ever purchased a new car or a new to you car and you've started driving it around. Have you ever had that experience where you're driving that car and suddenly you notice on the highway or even around town, like everybody has that car. You start seeing them everywhere and you're like, oh my gosh, that's crazy. Like I, made, I picked the right one because everybody else has it too. I hate to break it to you, like they didn't all go out and buy it. You're just suddenly noticing it because your perspective shapes your experience of life. Your perspective shapes what you see and what you experience in life. And I think the thing about cynicism and bitterness when it gets a hold of our life that we often lose sight of or forget is that most cynics are actually former optimists. Like I said, none of us set out in life to say like, I'm gonna be jaded and cynical by the time I'm in my 30s. Most cynics, if you go back to the earlier in the story, you'll find a moment of hope and optimism and belief, right? It's the difference between dating and maybe those early years of being married versus like 10, 15, 20 years down the line. And don't get me wrong, that's an incredible thing to stay connected in that way. But you can move from like, what could it be to it is what it is, right? <laughs> Pretty naturally. Uh, it's the difference between applying for the job and then being in the job for a decade. 
there's just this shift that can naturally happen where we go, grow a little jaded, where we lose sight of the why that got us into that career in the first place. It's the difference between the nine months of waiting for a child to arrive and the like three sleepless nights later after they arrived where you're like, is this gonna be forever, <laughs> right? Like, what happened? It, in all seriousness, it's easy for us to get jaded and for us to get cynical, but inside of every cynic, uh, there was once an optimist. In fact, George Carlin, the great theologian, who's not a theologian, by the way, uh, he once said this, that inside every cynical person, there is a disappointed idealist. And man, he said a lot of other things you shouldn't check out, but I think he got it right on that one, that inside of every cynical person, there is a disappointed idealist. And I think what's important for us to get today is that cynicism doesn't set in in our lives because people don't care, right? Cynics aren't people who don't care, but rather cynicism starts because you care. In other words, cynicism doesn't start because you don't care, but because you do care. Because most of us who drift into cynicism or feeling jaded, which I should have said this earlier, but like this is a lesson for me too. I can be as guilty of this as anyone, even though I'm wearing the microphone. I think cynical people often are brokenhearted people, not broken people. It's not people who don't have the capacity to care about things. It's people who have cared about things that they stuck their neck out on the line for, that they risked their heart for, and they got hurt by. And then once they got hurt, they withdrew a little bit. And maybe they tried again, and they got hurt again. And so they withdrew a little more. And they're all people. Any cynical person, if you're in the room today and you're like, hey, I'm not going to raise my hand because I'm in church, I'm supposed to look happy, but like, I tend this way. All cynical people had a divine spark in them at one time. I believe it's still there. But they've lost sight of what it means to live out of that belief and that trust and that hope along the way. And I think that begs the question, like, why do we become this way? Why do we become cynical? And I think one answer, there's probably many of them, but one answer is we know too much, right? The thing that, that can make us cynical over time is all of the things that we think that we know or maybe that we know that we know. And think about like when you were a kid. Weren't you like so happy and joyful and just bouncing around all the time? Do you know why most of us were happy as we were kids? It's because we were clueless. Like we were just little joy energy balls bouncing around enjoying life and like we never thought that someday we might get fired or we might get our heart broken or, or that people can get sick for no reason out of nowhere or, or that you can like do all the right things and work really hard and still not get the reward at the end of the day. My four-year-old is not thinking about that. Right? She's just wanting to be Lightning McQueen and bouncing around going, ka-chow, life's amazing. And <laughs> like, there's something to that. It, it's not bad that she's going to grow and learn more and that you probably did too along the way. But if we like, learn the wrong stuff or grab the wrong perspective, again, it can shape our perspective. And I'm not the only one who thinks this, but in scripture, there's a guy named Solomon who wrote a, a book that we know as the book of Ecclesiastes where he actually reflects on the nature of life. And Solomon was a guy who tried to pursue all of the wisdom and all of the knowledge that he possibly could. And it made him not a fun guy to hang out with at parties because the book of Ecclesiastes is a little bleak. And uh, to show you what I mean, it starts out like this. In Ecclesiastes chapter one, verse two, Solomon says, everything is meaningless, says the teacher. Completely meaningless. He had a lot of friends, as you can imagine. He goes on, he says, what do people get for all their hard work under the sun? Do you hear the cynical perspective already? Like, what's in it for me? What do people get? Generations come and generations go, but the earth never changes. The sun rises and the sun sets and then hurries around to rise again. The wind blows south and then turns north. Around and around it goes, blowing in circles. It's just this routine that happens day in and day out, the monotony of it. 
rivers run into the sea, but the sea is never full. And then the water returns again to the rivers and flows out again to the sea. Everything is wearisome beyond description. No matter how much we see, we are never satisfied. No matter how much we hear, we are never content. And he goes on, and he talks about how he pursued knowledge and he pursued wisdom. And he says, I said to myself, look, I'm wiser than any of the kings who ruled Jerusalem before me. I have greater wisdom and knowledge than any of them, so I set out to learn everything from wisdom to madness and folly. But I learned firsthand that pursuing all of this is like chasing the wind. So I'm going to pray, and we'll go home. No, I'm just kidding. That's like hopeless, isn't it? It feels so depressing. But the reason that I want to share this perspective that Solomon is learning, like this kind of cynical worldview, is the next thing he says, he drops this truth bomb on us as it relates to how all of us can drift into cynicism because he says, the greater my wisdom, the greater my grief. To increase knowledge only increases sorrow. And isn't that true of our experience of life? Like the more you go through the more you carry with you into each season, the more things you've experienced, like you may gain the wisdom, you may learn, but you also gain the grief and the pain along the way. And when it comes to being jaded or cynical, often the problem is you know too much. You know how people really are, right? You know how things really work at work. You know like what those politicians are actually up to behind the scenes. We drift into this mindset where we assume what we know or we think what we know. And again, our perspective shapes our experience. And and so we get in this space where we're closed off and we're guarded and we're hiding along the way. And uh, man, there's this great parable that I heard one time that will move us into the hopeful part of today, okay? It shows the power of choosing the right perspective. It's this story uh, that around uh, the turn of the century, there was this shoe manufacturer in America that decided they need to move into new markets. And so they sent two of their salesmen to this remote area in Africa. And they sent them overseas and uh, told them to go and to tap into this new market and sell their shoes. And they get there, and the two salesmen assess the village that they're in, and they decide that they're going to send telegraphs back to America to explain the situation. And, and so the first salesman takes a look at it, and he types out this message. He says, situation hopeless. They have no shoes. But the second salesman looks at the same village, and he sends this message back to corporate glorious business opportunity. They have no shoes, right? And and like we kind of laugh at that, but we laugh because you see the difference in perspective. They're seeing the same village. They're seeing the same reality. There's no shoes here. But the one salesman says it is what it is. He's like, this is terrible. There's no shoes here. But the second guy says it is what you make of it. Glorious opportunity. (laughs) They have no shoes here. And the powerful truth as it relates to cynicism and as it relates to the choices that we make in life is this, cynicism is actually a choice. Cynicism is a choice. It doesn't feel like it, right? Because if we drift in this direction, none of us do it intentionally, and we often drift that way because things happen to us that hurt us, and so we get guarded over time, but the reality is cynicism is a choice. Cynicism is a choice we make to protect ourselves from being hurt, but the thing we have to understand is that life doesn't make you cynical. You make you cynical, which means you don't have to make you cynical any longer, that you actually have a choice in the matter, that the one thing you can control is your response to the things that happen to you. It is what you make it, not just it is what it is. And it's important for us because the life of a Jesus follower is meant to be marked by all of the things that cynicism and bitterness want to choke out. 
The life of a Jesus follower is meant to be marked by belief and trust and hope that God can do more tomorrow than he's done today, that the future can be better than it is right now. But cynicism makes us believe that there's no reason to believe in more, that there is no hope, and that you can't trust anyone. Right? And so it's so important that we don't drift into that thinking, that we don't choose to be cynical. And in fact, the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, and the way that he talks to them is all about potential and the power of God at work in their lives, not about cynicism or a lack of belief. And here's what he says. He's writing to them, and he says, I've not stopped thanking God for you. Right out of the gate, he's not cynical, right? Because if you're cynical, you're rarely grateful. But he says, I haven't stopped thanking God for these people. I pray for you constantly, asking God, the glorious Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, to give you spiritual wisdom and insight so that you might grow in your knowledge of God. In other words, Paul's perspective is that like, you can grow in your faith, that there is more for you, that there is a future for you, that you can keep leaning in and getting more of God. It's not it is what it is. And he says, I pray that your hearts will be jaded and cynical. No, he says, I pray that your hearts will be flooded with light so that you can understand the confident hope that he has given those he called, his holy people who are his rich and glorious inheritance. And he goes on, he says, I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe him. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. Now, there's a ton packed into that little letter right there. But man, if that's true, right? Paul's saying like, hey, if you believe God, if you're trusting in God, if you want to follow God, then he will put the same power in you that he used to raise Jesus Christ from the dead, that that lives inside of each believer. And if that's true, here's what I hope you can see today. That means it doesn't have to be what it is. It it means it can be what you make of it. Because if you, you have this power that can be at work in you and through you, you get to use that same power for the world's good and for God's glory. And maybe another way to think about this, I don't know if you've ever heard uh, it described in this way, but the reality of our lives, the reality of the way that God chose to make the world is that we have what I would call co-agency with God. Sometimes people debate about this stuff, like, like how much control do we have over what happens versus how much does God control what happens, and it's been a great debate uh, over generations that we're not going to solve today. But one thing I would say is I think it's kind of both things. Like God has a plan, God is writing the story he has from the very beginning, but God always chose to do so in relationship with us. He wanted to create people who could rule with him over this world, and what that means is, yes, God has agency over the story, but he gives us agency or the ability to make decisions and write our own story as well. God chooses to work with us to write his story in this world, and we get to write our subplot to that story. We get to write our part along the way, And so what that means for you and what that means for me as far as the perspective that we have on life and the choices that we make in life is this. It's that the life that you were given is yours to make something of. And God gives you the agency and the freedom to make decisions to build it with him or not. But it's not what it is, right? Life isn't just an it is what it is exercise. Life is what you make of it. And you have the opportunity and you have the access to let the same power that raised Christ from the dead be at work in and through your life as you join God and as you dream big dreams and as you lean into possibility. But as we wrap up, I don't want to be blind to the reality that life is difficult. Okay, this isn't just like a woohoo, rah, rah, you've got power and you go get them, guys, kind of a talk. Because the reality is life is hard. 
Life is difficult, and circumstances happen to us that are far beyond our control. Tragic things happen to us that we can't do anything to avoid. You can do everything right, and something bad will still happen because that's the nature of the world that we live in. And I want to acknowledge that, that difficult circumstances are a part of the puzzle. And if you're here and you're in the midst of one right now, or you're still carrying grief from one with you right now, first, you're not alone, and you're not disqualified from what I'm talking about. But rather, the thing I think we need to remember is that for Jesus followers, we believe that God can take the worst possible circumstances and use them to create the most redemptive possible outcomes. And we believe that because when it comes to Jesus, right, the worst thing imaginable happened to Jesus. He was crucified on a Roman cross, but through his death and his burial, eventually God brought us to the resurrection, this new life that is possible and that is the foundation of our faith. God took the worst thing imaginable that happened to the best person possible and used it for our redemption and for our good. And he can do the same thing in whatever broken circumstances you may be facing as well. But to like, bring this down to the bottom shelf a little more, to make it a little more practical, here's what I would say. If you're like, hey, I want to be a person who has a it is what I make of it mindset, not an it is what it is mindset, but I'm going through some stuff right now. Here's what I would like, encourage you to do or maybe even give you permission to do. I would say if you're carrying something difficult, you have permission to grieve and move forward. Like you can do both things, sometimes at the same time. And that's so different than I think what we're culturally taught. Because the way that our culture tends to operate, the way that we kind of learn as good Americans to navigate stuff is like when we lose someone or we lose something, we get like a week off of work maybe if you're lucky and you're supposed to just like pack all the feelings into that week I guess and then get back to work the next week. Or, or, or like when we lose things, often we're tempted to just stuff it down and just keep moving forward, right? But that's not how life really works, and that's not how our hearts are actually wired. And the truth is, we need to grieve our losses, the big ones and the small ones. I mean, I, I mentioned this the other week. I feel like 2020, for all of us, was this series of ungrieved losses, where life as we knew it was taken from us, and, and we were just so busy trying to like make it and keep our jobs together and keep our families together and not get sick or whatever, that we didn't stop to think about like what was taken from us, uh, just our sense of security, our sense of normal, like all this stuff that's so disruptive. I don't think many of us have paused long enough to grieve those losses. We just kind of moved forward. But you can do both things. You can carry grief and loss, and you can move forward together. And in fact, the Apostle Paul uh, wrote a letter to the church in Rome, and in the 12th chapter of this letter, he uh, kind of lays out this laundry list of just what it looks like to follow Jesus. And I don't think it's an accident that side by side in his bullet point list of what it looks like to be a Jesus follower, he instructs this. He says, rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. And sometimes you can do both things at the same time, right? Like the, the reality, we're tempted to think that life is like rejoicing season, mourning season, rejoicing season. But that's not how life really works, is it? Like right now in this moment, I bet you could name things that you want to celebrate and you want to rejoice over. And I would be willing to bet you can name some things that you're mourning or grieving or disappointed with or don't like. We're always this mix of mourning and rejoicing. And both things can be good. Both things can be holy. Both things are necessary. But we have to engage in them to be able to move forward and be able to partner with God to turn our lives into something more than what they are. Many of us have heard of uh, the concept of post-traumatic stress syndrome. When we go through trauma or something intense, sometimes we can pick up bad habits along the way or, or just have to work through some of the consequences of that. 
But what you may not know is there's also the other side of the equation. There's this thing called post-traumatic growth. And that's why you know people, I would be willing to bet, who've gone through tragic circumstances, but they allowed those circumstances not to make them bitter, not to pull them down, but they actually allowed those circumstances somehow to make them better. That the grief and the trauma and the thing that they went through actually made them a different person. They grew along the way. And I think one thing that can help us to grow better rather than bitter is if we're navigating something difficult, we have to avoid bitterness like it's our job. Because bitterness is the natural response to loss. Bitterness is the natural response to pain, right? It's easy for us to want to blame someone and, and to grow bitter along the way. But the author of the letter of Hebrews instructed early Jesus followers in this way. He said, see to it that no one falls short of the grace of God. That sounds like a big deal, right? But he couples it with this. And that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and to defile many. That no bitter root grows up to cause trouble. So in my front yard right now, my neighbors have this vine that grows all the way across their fence. But that vine has continued to grow and somehow it's like crept its way across and like it sneaks under the bushes in our front yard. And clear over on the other side of my yard by my other neighbors, that thing has crawled up this evergreen tree that we have that goes all the way up. And so when I wake up in the morning right now and I look out my bedroom window on the second story, I've been greeted a couple of mornings by these like gross white flowering vine things that are growing out sideways from my evergreen tree. And I see that and I'm like, ugh, I don't want it there, right? And in fact, a couple of times I've gone out and I've like ripped some of it out. But do you know what happens? Like if I get a ladder out and I go to the, the tallest peak of that tree and I just rip that stuff out and I walk away, do you know what's gonna happen in about a week? going to grow back. Right? It's going to grow back, and it's probably going to go sideways some more just to spite me. Like, it's just going to keep growing. But not only that, but you know what it's going to do to that tree and to those bushes? It's going to start choking them. It's going to start killing the thing that I want to keep alive. That's the point that the author of the letter of Hebrews is trying to make. It's that bitterness does the very same thing in our life. You can't keep it contained. It runs wild. It grabs a hold of your heart, and it starts to choke out the very things that God wants for us, things like belief, and hope, and trust in other people, and trust in God. And so we have to avoid bitterness with everything that we've got. And I think one of the ways that we can do that is rather than allowing ourselves to grow cynical and bitter, we can choose to stay curious. We can choose to stay curious about the things that come our way in life, the experiences that we have. And listen, I know this is difficult. Okay, so I'm not just trying to be like, just go with the flow. Like, it's really hard, but if you can find a way to stay curious, I think compassion and curiosity are related. That the more we're willing to, to explore and to consider what we may be experiencing in life and what we can actually get out of life, it can actually free us up to stay hopeful and to keep a posture of belief. Because like, what if instead of casting judgment on others, because you know how people really are, what if you decided to get to know others? You were curious about them. And you're like, look, I, I've got my assumptions about who you are and why you think the way you think. But what if you like, got close enough to them to actually hear from them and learn from them? Here's what I think you would experience. is that it's hard to hate somebody up close. It's really easy to hate them behind a keyboard or from a distance. But it's hard to hate people up close when you hear their story. You, you, you grow empathy. You grow understanding. And that bitterness starts to lose some power along the way when we get curious about others. What if instead of assuming you know what people think or why they think, you started exploring what they think. You opened yourself up to like 
maybe some more knowledge or at least a different perspective or an appreciation for why they think what they think. Here's the point. It's that the cynical are never curious and the curious are never cynical. The cynical are never curious because they assume that they know everything, right? I've been there before. I've gained the knowledge. I know the way the world works. And so they wall themselves off and they lose the belief and the hope that God wants them to have. But curious people never grow cynical because they're constantly receiving and evaluating and learning what others' experience is like along the way. And so here's what I would say, one last thing that we can do to keep from growing cynical, but rather to keep our hearts open to God, is I would say, like, instead of pointing out problems, what if we could be the people who are the solution? What if we tried to be the solution to the problems that drive us crazy? What if we let the things that we want to guard ourselves against actually become motivation and passion for us to do something about those problems? Because here's the thing, like, Jesus followers, we're not supposed to be people who look at the world and say, it is what it is, and we just leave it how it is. We're supposed to be people who say, no, it is what we make it. And God is in the process of remaking this world in his image, and he wants to do it in and through us. And when you start looking for like, God to just bring the solution from outside of you, rather than how you can be the solution, you've let go of ownership of your own story. Because again, God gives you agency. God says you can make choices. You have a part that you can play in the healing and in the redemption of this world. And he wants to heal this world through you and through me as we choose to partner with him. And if that sounds like really big and really lofty and really hard to know where to begin, I get that. But here's what I challenge you to do this week. In whatever situation, whatever circumstance it may be that you're navigating, what if you just did the next right thing? Just like, what's the next right thing? Some of you are laughing because you're Frozen fans. I get it. But seriously, I'm not going to go there. In the movie, like there's this moment of grief, and then she chooses to move forward by doing the next right thing, and it's really redemptive, and you should check it out. But for us, like in all seriousness, what if you just figured out, hey, what's my next right move? Not where's the destination I need to end up at, not how am I going to solve the big problems of the world, but what is the next right thing that I could move that would move me in the right direction? What is the next right step that I can take along the way? Here was Paul's perspective on it. He wrote this to the church uh, in Colossae. He says this, that there's this group of people that God has revealed the mystery of salvation to, and he says to them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. What that means, it's kind of a catchy phrase, but a confusing phrase that sounds good, but we don't know what it means. I think what Paul's getting at is that Christ in you is how hope shows up in this world. That God, wanting to have agency with us, wanting to write the story with us, wanting to include us in his story, says, hey, if you want to live in a world full of mercy, if you want to live in a world full of justice, if you want to live in a world full of peace, then find ways to be merciful and just and peaceful. That Christ in you is the hope of glory. And so we can't be people who just sit back and hope God fixes it all, and we're just going to bide our time, God's told us, no, 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 it's ours to carry. That he wants us to be the solution, do the next right thing, and make it what God wants it to be, to make this world the world that he dreamed it could be. And we know what that world looks like. Because at the very end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, which is really confusing, and we can talk about it another time, but at the very end, he makes this promise. It says Jesus is sitting on his throne, and he says this. It says, look, I am making everything new. And here's the thing. 
We love to hold on to that hope for the future. But what if those were marching orders for right now? Right? What, what if God is saying, no, 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 I'm not waiting until eternity, but right now you can partner with me in making everything new. And what if everything being made new isn't just some promise for your future, but it's what God wants to do through you right now in every situation and in every circumstance? Because we don't have to live an it is what it is kind of life. In fact, we're called not to. Instead, God wants us to believe it is what we make of it when we partner with him when we connect our story to his story and we allow him to help us write a good one together. <coughs> I want to wrap up uh, by reading you a quote from uh, an author and a theologian, a guy named Frederick Beekner, and uh, he's a really interesting character. He actually just passed away last month, um, but he talks a lot just about what a faithful life with God looks like, and he had this quote in a book uh, one time where he talks about what it means to receive and live out the grace of God and I think in our perspective of trying to view life as it is what we make of it, it can be a helpful grid to think through. He says the grace of God means something like, here is your life. You might never have been, but you are, because the party wouldn't have been complete without you. And here is the world. And beautiful and terrible things will happen. But don't be afraid because I'm with you, and nothing can ever separate us. It's for you that I created the universe, and I love you. Like, can you imagine that maybe that's what God is saying to you right now in this moment? He's saying, like, here's your life, right? And it's a gift, and here's this world, and it's beautiful, and it's terrible, and it's good, and it's bad, and there's so much that we have to make of it, but, like, I could picture God leaning in and being like, let's make it a good one, because it is what you make of it, and I want to make it with you. And here's what I want you to think about as we wrap up. It's you don't know what hangs in the balance of your willingness to move from cynicism and bitterness and saying, hey, it just is what it is, and it'll be what it'll be, and instead to be a person of belief and hope and trust. You don't know what hangs in the balance of your willingness to say, hey, we're going to make something of my life, the one life I get. We're going to make something of this world that God has given to us. You don't know what hangs in the balance, and you don't know who hangs in the balance of your willingness to say yes to the dreams and the hopes and the ambitions that God has put in you. Hey, once again, thanks for listening. If you live in or near the Peru, Indiana area, we would love for you to engage with us at one of our weekend gatherings. To find directions, service times, and information about our environments for kids, visit us at storyperu.com.